Thanks everyone for having me. Um, really grateful for being here. Look, I'm going to do my best. It is one o'clock in the morning, so don't expect too much genius because I don't think there's a lot going on. But uh, I just had my 38th year sober birthday last Thursday, <clears throat> which for me is, you know, living proof that this works. So I'm going to tell tell my story and uh, and hopefully it um. It makes some sense. So my name's Robin and I'm an alcoholic. I was born in 1960 in a place called London, England. And my mother was on the gas for 16 hours and I was born with severe brain damage, which meant that my motor coordination and my capacity for learning was severely damaged. <clears throat> uh, that meant it took me a long time to walk and do anything that had coordination in it. And I had uh, problems with those things all of my life and still still do. <clears throat> They're pretty well masked, but that, that was the situation. Um, I grew up in a family where my father was um, quite a traumatized human being from his childhood and was also a member of the communist party. And I grew up in a house with that and he'd also been a member of the well-to-do and um, so we lived in very working class circumstances and I went to private schools where the extremely well off went so I would be picked up on a bicycle by a father that drove a bus and then go to school with people with Rolls-Royce Corniches in a place called Windsor and that school called Upton House. So my life was full of <laughs> massive contradictions right from the get-go. <clears throat> my um, experience with school and all that, of course, was really a lot of humiliation and, a lot of, you know, I did things like I was the last kid in the running race and I was the kid that stopped remembering how to swim in the middle of the swimming carnival and sank to the bottom of the pool. I was the kid that couldn't kick the football. I was the kid that missed the ball with the bloomin' bat. I was the guy that wrote fire truck PH. I was, that, was my, that was my reality at school. I was quite gregarious. I still was able to cope. My father was an explosive kind of guy, and that was pretty much the story for me. And so, you know, a lot of us, um, well, in my case, situation was that I, I formed the idea that I was less than. I'd certainly got lots of information that that was the case, and I'd certainly had enough humiliation to know that that was the case. Um, I had a very obsessive mind. I always had, and when I got something right, I wouldn't let go of it. And there was a couple of things I could do. One of them was ride a motorcycle, and I happened to be pretty good at that. And um, another one was ride a bicycle, and I was pretty good at that, and I did them in a very obsessive manner. Um, other than that, I was pretty well talentless. <laughs> and I hit 15 years old or 14 years old and had my first drink. And when I had my first drink, um, it was a beer. Nothing particularly happened. The next day, I couldn't walk. I couldn't, literally couldn't walk because of my coordination stuff. And I felt the most relaxed I'd ever felt in my life. 
and I remembered it as a really solid experience. I hadn't quite put it together, but it was quite profound for me. <clears throat> it didn't take long uh, as I, I left school at 14 and nine months and um, had failure after failure at employment. And uh, that, that went on my whole life, uh, even sober. I um, then started drinking and every time I drank, there were consequences. There was never a time I drank where there wasn't some consequence like crawling home or walking into doors or whatever it was. There was never, it was never consequence free. But what always happened for me was an extreme personality change and, and one where the consequences never were, were uh, they were, they, it was fine. I didn't mind the consequences. It was all right. And, and it was all right because the peace that I got while drinking was always worth the cost. Um, my drinking progressed pretty quickly. By the time I was 17 years old, my parents moved back to England on some wild goose chase about trying to live in Eastern Europe, <clears throat> which didn't happen. And I was left in Australia on my own at 17. And by the time I was 18 years old, I was living in DOS houses, literally crawling up the street and, um, you know, living in a pretty bad way. Uh, I remember one particular story. I was just about, well, I think I was close to 19 years old and I had, I had really bad, um, really bad peripheral neuritis starting and I used to sweat profusely and the bottoms of my feet literally had rotted off and I couldn't wear shoes because all the insides of my shoes and socks were rotten. <clears throat> and, a per and I didn't have anything on my feet. So if someone gave me a pair of thongs and it was like a big deal of 40 cents, I think they were. And that's the kind of way I lived. I, um, I was pretty much destitute but I did have the doll. I um, was a very odd looking person. I lived in a, in a place called Manly and eventually I ended up being put in a Christian rehabilitation center for people with emotional problems because there was no such thing as rehabs then, not where I was. And I stayed on this place for three months and um, I got so distressed, I ended up smoking aspirins. And that's the kind of guy I am. If I, if I put me in a corner, I'm going to get something and I'm going to ingest it. <laughs> and uh, I've done lots of things like smoke aspirins, drink datura um, in large quantities. And, um, you know, it was never any, it was never rational. It was, um, I had my first suicide attempt at 16. So I never particularly cared about the consequences. And if I ended up dead, I was pretty good with that. I used to do things like carve my arms up and stuff. So let's put it this way. I wasn't really a social drinker. And, um, and, I, and I didn't live anything like a normal life, but I, alcohol always worked for me. And due to a set of circumstances, I ended up going back and hanging out with some friends of mine and 
I ended up being able to work again and I uh, got back into motorcycling and I kind of looked like a semi-normal person, but my friend's parents were extremely heavy drinkers and it was just a safe environment. And I had a few places where I looked like I was going to do normal again, but it never lasted very long. By the time I was uh, tw 21 years old, I um, was pretty much living on cough mixture and Serapax. And in those days, cough mixture used to have codeine, ethadrine and alcohol in it. And I'd become quite delusional and I would accidentally choke people when they said hello to me. Um, and I'd done all those things that happen when the progression keeps going. I'd made many decisions to not drink. And then I would end up with a drink in my hand with no idea how that occurred. So this progressed pretty quickly and I was, I was absolutely exhausted by just just my daily life. Um, anyway, I made a decision to stop drinking and I went to Alcoholics Anonymous. I smoked dope all day, so I was really together. And I walked into the room and in those days we used to have cups and saucers in AA meetings. And if you want to pick out where the detoxing guy is, give him a cup and a saucer. Because <laughs> you're gonna hear it from across the room. And, and, and the adventure started for me. I came to AA. I went to my first meeting. I identified straight away. A guy grabbed me and he took my number and he called me. And from then on, I was in Alcoholics Anonymous. A week later, um, I was quite deranged and he took me, took me to a detox and I spent three days strapped to a bed. I had no idea that I was this, that sick. And, um, you know, it's really important thing to understand about alcoholism for me. I kind of equate it to the diabetes thing. You know, you can have the diabetes where you change your diet. You can have the diabetes where you take the pill. You can have the diabetes where you take insulin. You can have the diabetes where you have a, you're on a pump. It's all diabetes. I happen to be a pump guy. It doesn't mean I'm any less or more di diabetic than anyone else. But in my case, because of the extremeness of my, my drinking and, and the way that I think, I, I jumped into AA, boots and all. And in, the, in those days, AA was pretty much very long stories with a lot of cigarettes. And um, that was pretty much all we did. And especially in Australia, there was no real God stuff. There was those stupid words on the wall. I thought it was the outreach program for the Salvation Army when I arrived. It was like, is this where the stupid people end up? And, but it wasn't a big deal. But they were, I still had the obsession to drink for the first five to seven years of my sobriety. And I stayed sober on service. And I say that because it's really important because that selflessness connected me to people and it gave me some direction and some connection, but it didn't free me. And when I got seven years sober, a guy took me through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and I had a personality change and that personality change was incredibly powerful for me. And I started to perceive life differently and myself differently.
After that, I, I started to become quite a zealot in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, one of the things that you hear a lot in um, secular AA is the bagging of AA zealots. Well, I was one of those guys for a long time. And the reason that I was comfortable with being a zealot was I didn't have a life and I didn't have a personality and I only found a personality and a life in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was one of those annoying, big book thumping, righteous pricks that you get in AA for quite a long time. And, uh, and eventually um, I've, I got told to fuck off a lot. <laughs> And eventually I got it that I was a really annoying human being. And, um, but it took a while, I'm not quick. And in amongst all of this stuff, there was a lot of life changes that went on. One of them was that I, I met my now wife, we've been married for over 30 years. And I'd started changing a lot of the things, ways that I lived. So when I met my wife, we dated for a year with no physical intimacy. And the point of that was, was to, and I was 28 at that point, <clears throat> was that it was about having a friendship first. And these are the sort of things that started to happen to me, was I started to do things very, very different in life. And I started to approach life from a point of, character building. Later on, uh, we had a child and I did what most um, human men do that can't handle something, I left. And at 11 years sober, I, I had a wife and a child and I was living in a car. And I was living in the car because I didn't know how to be a grown up and I didn't know how to hold a job down. And all I knew how to do was talk AA shit. And um, my sponsor at the time said, you need to go back and be a grown-up. And uh, my wife's from a place called Mekathara, which is in the middle of bloody nowhere. <clears throat> and she's not terribly subtle. And she said, either fuck off or be, or, or be an adult. So I came back and I tried to be a parent to this child. And the level of inadequacy that I felt around anything to do with responsibility was massive. But I started to do this thing. And eventually, um, my sponsor said to me, your wife needs support in the family because your family is not giving her anything. And I said, yeah, but they're in Western Australia. And at this point, I was on a life pension for mental illness, <clears throat> if you hadn't guessed yet, but I got mental illness. And I, was, and I didn't ever have to work again. And I had a supported housing. And I had to give that up to go to Western Australia to still separate her from my wife and to support my um, wife and child. And I did that and I got a really big thing from it. What I got from it was the capacity to care for others, the capacity to be responsible and, 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 to, and to put those things before my own, you know, desires and in a way where you know selflessness wasn't just about some sort of blooming martyrdom but it was about really being a human being that does the right thing and it completely changed me and there was lots of other little stuff around that but eventually we got back together and um you know I never did any of that inadequate selfish stuff that a lot of people I know or men that I know do when they 
I didn't have an affair or do any of that. I just, you know, did the right thing. And, um, and what happened from there was I built up this life and I, I ended up holding down a job working for myself because I'm, I'm actually a painter by trade. And, you know, things started to happen in my life and I started to have a normal life for quite a long period of time. And in this normality, I was able to go through the steps and, and, and I'll just divert for a minute. I may come back to this and I may not. What I came to understand about the steps was this, that step one is twofold. One is that I am physically different to others and that when I drink, you know, there is a, there's a craving and an obsession. When those things are not active, I have a much more serious problem. And that problem is what causes the unmanageability in my life. And that problem is an incorrect perception of my own internal reality and the re reality around me. And it starts with the belief of who I think I am and then what I should do about who I think I am. And those actions end up with me in conflict. And the conflict's evident by the things that are happening in my life. And that happened before I drank. That happened while I drank. And it got a lot worse when I got sober. And the consequences emotionally were quite high. So I, I understood and accepted that. After that, what happened was the result of that was that the evidence of my unmanageability came into, I had to believe that I didn't have the power to change my own thinking. And that I came to believe that this process would change my thinking. And I put in this process in, and, and I believe that that was true for the evidence of people around me and the experience that I'd gone through. And I made a decision to turn my will and my life over. Now, the important thing in the big book about this decision is, and let's just cut the, you know, the invisible friend out for a minute, is most of the, most of the stuff in the book about step three is about the actor on the stage. And the actor on the stage is trying to manage life so that basically they get what they want, they feel safe and secure, get their instincts met and they're okay. And what happens is the more that they do it, the more conflict that they cause within and around them. And that, that, is, that is the understanding of step one in about the level of how I perceive reality and how, and how, I, and how I act off it and cause myself conflict. The, 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 the trap with step three is to get all sucked into what a concept of a power is. Uh, if you're atheist like I am, um, that isn't that a complicated, is not that complicated an idea. You know, I've got lots of facts, you know, factual proof of a power greater than myself working in my life through this information through the concepts of this information through the relationships I've had in this program and also um, you know in time what happened for me was through working this program I, I've, I found a deep resource inside myself like Bill said but it isn't a mystical resource it's the truth of who I am 
now heading back to the story is where we were before. I um I got on the on the wagon and, and became a workaholic and did the family thing and created a business and was reasonably successful and ended up with lots and lots of toys. I think I had about 22 motorbikes and 10 cars and assorted shit and and perceived myself as, you know, probably about the most together that I'd ever been. <clears throat> and for someone who had never had any success in their life, I must say that I... I ticked a box I'd never ticked before. And the box that I ticked was the box of I'm okay now. And I'd never had that experience. And little did I know that, and, and, I'll, and I'll say this at this point, but little did I know that, the, that I'd given myself permission because I perceived the value in the things that I'd got and the things that I'd done made that possible for me to tick that box. I later found out that I can tick that box anytime I want. <laughs> I don't have to have all that, all these things that I perceive make me valuable to tick that box. It's been a really important lesson. The next thing that happened for me after a period of all this success was um, I got something wrong. I picked a guy to work in my business that was a little dishonest and ended up with a my business collapsed. Uh, the day my business collapsed, both my parents killed themselves. It was a pretty momentous event for me. And I did what any unstable human being would do and I completely lost my shit and had a mental breakdown. I still did AA, I still worked with people, but I was pretty much a mess. I was suicidal for the next three years. I met a psychiatrist that said that suicide is contagious and that if you do it, it's very possibly that someone else in your family will catch it or be seriously affected by it. My sponsor at the time, who I still have, is a woman named Polly Pistol in the US, um, said to me that everything that you go through eventually becomes an asset. I've said, thank you very much for that. <laughs> I was not impressed. I then um, spiraled down and, and my life absolutely disintegrated financially in, in every way. I, um, I, I got PTSD up to the wazoo, depression was up to the wazoo, and I was 20 odd years sober at that stage, I think almost 30. And one of the great things that came from this is the tearing away of concepts and ideas of who I am and what, so all that stuff that I'd built my recovery on and my idea of myself were torn out of my life. And, and what I ended up with, with what I started off with, which was a bucket load of self-hatred. And I'd never really known that. I'd never really known that underneath all of this stuff lay a lot of self-hatred. And, and, I, and I got to deal with that self-hatred. And what I got to deal with was 
that, you know, I perceive myself as of no worth because of the things that I, the defects, the physical defects and mental defects that I grew up with, and I judged myself as less than. And what I've discovered in Alcoholics Anonymous from still, you know, doing steps and doing service and all that stuff and, and, and accepting myself as I am and my reality, which has completely changed, <clears throat> is that not only am I exactly how I am meant to be, that I get, I get certain assets from this. And one of them is that I have the capacity to understand what it's like to live with mental illness. I have the capacity to, to know how to survive living and feeling separate. And, um, you know, and, and, and one of the great things about being atheist in, in normal Alcoholics Anonymous is that you get to feel a part of something that you're really a part of, and then you get reminded on a regular basis you've got it wrong. <laughs> and a whole lot of people think you're full of shit. And, and, but you get to hold the, hold the flag up for those others that are around. And this was before secular AA. And secular AA is still important. So today, you know, I'm a guy that's uh, just turned 38 years sober. I believe that I'm living proof that you can become um, freed from the things that cause me to drink. I don't identify myself as uh, a worthless piece of crap. I, work, I identify myself as a useful working piece of society. I get to work with lots of people with trauma in AA, uh, which I think is a blessing. I get to work with lots of people who have dealt with, who have had a lot of suicide in their, in their life and in their recovery and also have problems with it themselves. And, and, you know, I feel like this has been an amazing adventure for me. You know, I'm 60 years old. I got sober at 22. This is just a great thing. And, and I'll end on this. Um, you know, secular AA has been a great experience for me. And the reason is, is that first of all, like anything, I got terribly enthusiastic and thought, here we are, we are going to be the ones. And then um, I started to realize that there were very many different ways of perceiving this. And I'm a true big book guy. Like I am completely believe in the information contained in the book about the diagnosis of the problem and the diagnosis of how to, how to get the solution. I am not interactive with the historical belief systems and structures that are contained within that. But, you know, that's, 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 that's where I stand here. And I really enjoy being part of this, um, revolution of consciousness that is um, going on in AA. So thank you very much for the opportunity to share. I hope I made some sense. I apologize if I rambled at all. <laughs>